Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names are Shipra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because of the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when they could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So on the one hand, this chapter, these chapters present a very different world from the one that we left at the end of Genesis. On the other hand, it is in part a consequence of that ending. The conclusion of Genesis is the story of Joseph being reconciled with his brothers. It's a story in which God uses the the vindictive uh, uh, intentions of Joseph's brothers to orchestrate this incredible rescue plan. But there is something else going on in those final chapters. Back when Egypt is in the throes of a famine, 
many Egyptians go broke buying food, and they come, but they come to Joseph any, anyway, seeking food, and Joseph says, well, uh, give me your land. And so they sign over their land. And then later, when the food runs out again, he says, all right, well, uh, you can slave yourselves uh, to Pharaoh. And so what you have is this real concentration of wealth uh, at, at, in the, among the upper class of, of Egypt. Uh, now, in that sense, you can understand why that part of the story is often sort of left out of sermon series and out of children's versions of the Joseph story. But it's not an unfamiliar story. I mean, this is what often happens in times of crisis. We see that uh, happening in the crisis that we just endured, right? Uh, the, the result of the pandemic was a greater concentration of wealth at the top. The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. I mean, it was an issue even before the pandemic, but the pandemic made it worse. Uh, and so, while Joseph's there, enabling this to happen, I mean, he serving, obviously ingratiates himself to Pharaoh so that when Joseph's kin arrives in Egypt, they arrive as guests. But you get a new regime uh, who doesn't, doesn't remember Joseph, doesn't remember what he did. Uh, it, now, in order for those people to be of benefit to the regime, they have to uh, be slaves. And so, uh, so while Joseph had served at Pharaoh's side, now his descendants are serving under Pharaoh's boot. And when you read this chapter, it's almost as if Pharaoh has sort of wrestled the story away uh, from the, the, the people who are supposed to be the subject of the story. I mean, the fact is, most of Genesis is really a family drama. It is a drama uh, driven by the fact that God is determined to restore the creation, uh, and he's, God's going to do that by making a covenant with the, uh, Abram, creating a people through whom God is going to bless every other nation. But really, what happens in Genesis isn't a story of a nation, again, as much as it is a story of a family. And it's a family drama that is driven, in many ways, by babies, or the lack of babies. I mean, it, uh, it takes 25 years before God produces the, the first citizen of this new nation. It takes 25 years before Isaac is born. And then Isaac marries Rebecca, and there's uh, fertility issues there. And then she does get pregnant, and then she thinks she's going to die because she finds out her, the babies in her womb are these warring nations. Um, and then you have Jacob, and their baby drama is all about the competition between Leah and uh, his one, first wife Leah and his, and Rebecca, or and Rachel, and their competition. That competition results in having twelve sons, and we know their names because they become the twelve tribes of Israel. And but all of that is sort of forgotten. Here, when Pharaoh decides this is his story to tell. Whatever 
fertility issues seem to have plagued Israel in the beginning. That, that, those are past because uh, this is no longer just a family drama. This is a national drama. They, they are, um, have reproduced and reproduced. They are abundantly fertile to the point that it is a threat. Because Pharaoh does not see this nation as the fulfillment of divine promises. Uh, this, in his telling, this story, this, is, this, this people is a threat. And it is, it is a labor pool for Pharaoh to exploit. Genesis, you know, Joseph, we, you know, he's a named person. But now it's, in, in Pharaoh's telling, it's just, just this sort of faceless, nameless mass of people. Because Pharaoh is not interested in their names. Pharaoh is interested in them as a number. That's all they are to him. They're numbers. And at the beginning of the chapter, Pharaoh makes clear that their numbers are way too high. And so Pharaoh finds himself in a position that tyrants often a dilemma tyrants often find themselves in, right? On the one hand, he wants to protect and expand his own wealth and power by exploiting this labor force. Uh, you know, in some ways, this labor force is sort of a, a gift, but uh, he, the downside of exploiting people is that they don't like to be exploited. They can get bent out of shape about it. They can find it oppressive. So... Pharaoh is trying to uh, navigate. I mean, he's got all the institutional power. He's got the political power. He's got economic power. And he's uh, wielding that against them. And the only power they have is their bodies. Right? And uh, that's what he wants to exploit that. But too many bodies, well, that is another sort of power, the power of numbers. And he's worried, could the number have, is the number at a point where they're the power of their numbers can overcome their institutional, political, economic power. And he's, Pharaoh is convinced they're sort of near that, that uh, threshold. And, he, and once you start thinking that way, it makes you a little paranoid. I think we see that here too. He starts seeing all those babies coming off the assembly line as uh, weapons of mass destruction. And he's got to make a preemptive strike. And so he makes male births illegal, punishable by death. Now, on the way, this is, I mean, killing babies is an extreme measure. But I think there's a way in which you could say, yeah, well, the fact that it's an extreme measure is in part the point. Because when you're paranoid, what you do is when you see a little thing that, me is, that is, feels threatening, overreacting against that little thing ensures that there won't be a big thing that's threatening, right? If, if I'm going to react this way against just the fact that you're having babies, just think how I will react if you do something serious. Frankly, um, I think what happened with Colin Kaepernick is an example of this. I think... White people, we, we don't want to deal with our racial history, our racist history. And so when Colin Kaepernick, 
right? He did just a little thing. Took a knee during the national anthem. And we freaked out. Uh, It was just an attempt to draw attention to what he saw as uh, racial injustice in our law enforcement system. And we didn't know it wasn't. It was just his way of saying he had, you know, of disrespecting the flag, of having, uh, of disrespecting all the the troops that died to ensure our freedom. Uh, And it it was such an extreme reaction that the 49ers had to to let him go and no other team wanted him. I mean, have you ever seen Colin Kaepernick? I mean, he's six foot six. Physique looks like it was drawn by Marvel Comics. He had a cannon for an arm, and he was—he had this incredible speed. And yet, our reaction was so strong that no, that no team said, could see that. All they could see is this overreaction. And so, that was the end of his career. It was—I mean—it seems to me that was—we wanted to say that, that was about patriotism. No, it wasn't. It was about fear but fear of having to address issues we don't want to address and making sure we didn't have to. Anyway, now in Pharaoh's case, there is some legitimacy to his fear about the numbers of uh, Israelites. Because ultimately, what we, even as it appears that Pharaoh is saying, this is my story to tell, this is about accumulating my power for me, in fact, we see even as he's desperately trying to assert that, we're seeing that that's a, that's a lie. It is not his story. It is as much God's story in Exodus as it is in Genesis. Um, you know, even when you know, uh, he's trying to, uh, tells these midwives to kill the baby boys, it's not having the effect, and, you know, and they say, well, what are you going to do? These, these Israelites, I mean, the women have babies, they're like, boop, all right, there's another one. You know, they, they just, they, they're done before we even get there. And anyway, God blesses that. But it's not really the trickery of these midwives that is ensuring these, that the nation continues to grow. It's, it's a fact that this is a nation under divine blessing. They may just be a faceless, nameless mass of humanity to Pharaoh, but they aren't that way to God. God is saying, these are my people. So you might as well quit trying to narrate their story, Pharaoh. You might as well let them go. Now, of course, I'm getting ahead of ourselves here. It'll be a bit before those words are, are uttered. But even here, even in the, these opening chapters, we are seeing Pharaoh's authority being eroded. His ability to tell the story is sort of fraying. Um, first of all, he thinks the threat is male. Well, what this story reveals is that a lot of the females are really who are undermining uh, his authority, right? First of all, I mean, he thinks, oh, yeah, I just, I'm worried about an army that's in cahoots with an enemy. But, but it's really, uh, it's probably his own arrogance that makes him unable to see that the women here are, are the real trouble. These midwives, uh, Shifra, Shifra and Pua, and then Moses' older sister, who's babysitting her baby brother, and when the crisis arises, is smart enough to devise a plan that not uh, gets uh, Moses back home and having f- uh, the Pharaoh's own daughter pay 
for them to raise him. It's, it is a, there's a, a lot of irony in this story. Uh, and I mean that in the strict sense. I mean, irony is often used in a lot of ways, but if I found, like, I like the Cambridge Dictionary. It says, a situation in which something which was intended to have a particular result has the opposite or very different result, right? That fits in this situation. Pharaoh has this overreaction to this situation and uh, trying to exert control, trying to assert that he is the narrator of this story. And what happens is that overreaction sets in motion a series of events that results in Israel's deliverer, the very thing he wants to hang on to, the deliverer is raised in his own home by his own daughter. And even as he sort of treats them as a sort of nameless, faceless mass, it's his daughter that gives that deliverer his name, Moses. You know, and in a sense, it's, it's Pharaoh's daughter that names the great leader of the, of the Israelite people. Now, I say the great leader, I guess, technically, second greatest leader. Uh, the greatest leader actually has a story that has lots of parallels to Moses' story, right? Because like Moses, Jesus' birth is perceived to be a threat to the rule of a tyrant. And that tyrant will overreact and demand the death of baby boys. And of course, where do Mary and Joseph go when that threat is, uh, when that policy is instituted? Well, they flee to Egypt. And like Moses, Jesus' life is shaped by, in relationship to his dealings with tyrannical powers and their attempts to assert control over the story. There will be religious tyrants, and they will track him down when he is alone and vulnerable and arrest him. And then we'll see that power in numbers. We'll see that operating when there's a tyrannical mob shouting incessantly for his execution. And of course, there will be political tyrants uh, that will say, let's make a public uh, example of him, and let's broadcast his misery as a reminder of who gets to tell this story? And like with Moses, all this ends up being quite ironic. Because what none of those powers knows is that this is exactly how God will free God's people. This is the beginning of the undoing of all oppression. It signals the defeat of the ultimate tyrant, the powers of darkness. So it is through their attempts to end his story that he opens up a whole new chapter, offering us a story without end, a happily ever after. Now, you and I, we have the privilege of living in a nation where government authority is not imposed on the people, but determined by the will of the people. 
But truth is, we have a variety of tyrants we still have to deal with. Now, I think one of the things I have come to really appreciate in recent years is small town life. But I've been told that living in a small town can be a bit tyrannical because everybody knows everyone else's business. Everyone thinks they know your story, right? And that no matter what you may do, if you do something that goes against that story, well, they just dismiss it because ah, they, they, you know, they've got you figured out, they know what's going on, and, or they just twist whatever you do to, sort, to fit that story. Uh, but even there, there are more sorts of tyrants that I have to deal with. Some of them are internal. Little internal pharaohs. The little pharaoh inside each one of us that is determined to assert control over our story. Uh, I think sometimes the way to identify it is to take note of when, when do you overreact to something? What, what is that saying about who's trying to run the show up there? What is, it, what is it we find so threatening? That's often our little, that is often a clue into our little internal pharaoh. I think probably even a better clue is to notice patterns in our lives, stories that we tell over and over again. That's often evidence of a pharaoh at work. For instance, uh, and they're often very ironic, right? They're ironic because the, the story may be that we need we desperately don't want to be alone, and so we cling to all the people in our lives, and that because we cling to the people in our lives, it's like, they shove us away. And so it has this ironic result. Or, uh, I'm so desperate to make sure that you uh, respect me and, and admire me that I'm constantly trying to impress you, and people just roll their eyes and you become a joke. The really ironic thing about internal pharaohs, much easier to see them in someone else than to see our own. Because if you see your own pharaoh, your own way, you're trying to cling to your own story. If you become aware of it and how it's operating, you have to deal with it. You have to know that when God says, let my people go, God's not just talking about a nameless, faceless mass. He's talking about you. You've got to let go of your own story. And the little pharaoh inside of us desperately does not want to let go. Friends, pharaohs may be inside us. They may be around us. But we are also in Christ, and Christ is in us. And like, like Moses, we are drawn from water, the waters of baptism. And then that baptism, we are told that our story is tied to Christ's story. So that regardless, regardless of what tyrants we may face, whether they're external or internal, we don't have to overreact. We don't have to freak out. We don't have to live as people enslaved by fear because we are free. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.